welcome back to the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lawrence Grieve, and today I'm joined by three hunky, muscular men, Mr. Daniel Chappelle, Jack Radford-Smith, and Daniel Yates. So we're going to start off with a bit of an update, see where the guys are at, what's been significant in their week from a training, nutrition, life standpoint. And first things first, Jack, that recent update on the posterior shots, mate. What is going on? You look like a new person from the back, mate. What's the secret? Yeah, thanks a lot. That's certainly been the goal this improvement season is to improve on that posterior shot. I I remember first sending a few photos to AJ and he more than even more so than the back itself, he kind of commented on the lack of thickness in the hamstrings and how you could basically drive a bus through there from the rear. So that's been a, a huge focus point is, is bringing that up. And yeah, I think my reverse process after competing was was pretty good so basically i had a huge runway to gain weight and i've been able to gain about 10 or 11 kilos under aj like bring up probably the the the, the movement that's contributed the most to that has been the rdl like going from like 150 to uh almost 200 kilos now and yeah basically the the tissue has piled on in the right places and which is can't complain yeah, mate, absolutely. But it's quite interesting because your hamstrings, even last year from the side, were definitely a strong point. So it's just interesting, I guess, when you consider like how the muscle sits on your frame is that you can have these big, booming, sweeping hamstrings from the side shots, but then still a lot of more room to grow. And I suppose from the rear, we're talking about a bit of adductor thickness in there as well. But it's just interesting how it can be such a strong point from the mm. side. I don't want to even say like they were you know, terrible from the back. But when you see how much tissue you've put on them now, it's startling the difference. Yeah, thanks. It's, I definitely agree. The adductor thickness helps a lot because I wasn't training my adductors previously. Like I've had issues maybe stemming from playing football, but I've always hopped onto that adductor machine in previous off seasons and just feel that irritable tugging at like that insertion point around the groin. But this time I just started slow literally started with like one plate on the on the adductor machine and worked my way up to like the full stack at my gym now and that's obviously resulted in some good growth uh no no thigh gaps on stage next time yeah mate no look at the business very very good to see and uh dc you've uh a few weeks post mini cut now are you sort of back into the off-season mode is the appetite still quite good at the moment or are you are you back into the uh, off-season life of feeling a bit full yeah, so we ran about a an eight week mini cut, um, and I started that mini cut sitting at around, I think I just pushed upwards of ninety seven kilos, um, and so the idea was to try and sort of pull down to around ninety one in about sort of six weeks. So we we ended up extending that mini cut just for a little bit longer, just to try and get down towards sort of the low the low ninety kilo mark. And uh, yeah, the, the calorie pulls were, were pretty aggressive, which, you know, as it should be in a mini cut to try and strip that weight off and kind of create a runway for the next gaining phase. I mean, one of the, the advantages of, of that mini cut was to try and resensitize hunger a little bit because I don't know about you guys, but towards the end of a pushing phase, I just have no appetite whatsoever. I just can't even look at food. It's, you know, 10 week picks at nighttime with honey to, tr to try and get the carbs down. So yeah, it's... Um, definitely helped to resensitize the hunger a little bit more and um you definitely notice the effects of you know increasing your calories back up to that close sort of for the initial part close to to maintenance um and then sort of slowly increasing carbs uh from there on so we've been quite conservative sort of out of the gate i guess um and that's probably due to perhaps a little bit more estimation around calorie intake based on the quite sociable month that's that's been uh, sort of the, the April, early May, um, obviously being Mother's Day and, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, man, energy is back into it again, feeling a lot more stronger within the gym as well. So kind of ready for this next gaining phase. Yeah. And did you do that with BK or did you handle the mini cake yourself? Yes. So I'm still with BK for, for this off season. Um, I think that's going to be an integral piece to making the most between, you know, now and when I jump back on stage um i previously had managed all of my own off seasons and although i i think i did did really well in doing that uh i think it's just always important to have someone you know in your corner that has an unbiased view for your you know personal development so yeah yeah mate well even seeing you at the show the other week when you had just wrapped up the mini cut you looked absolutely enormous so 
I think that another big offseason, especially under a bit more of a watchful eye of BK, is going to be pretty scary next time you're on stage, mate. Yeah, that's the goal, man. <laughs> yeah. Scaring women and children. What about you, DY? I think you've just finished up a mini cut as well. So I'm on the final week of my mini cut right now. So we're just going to run a deload for this next week. Um, we played it quite aggressive, similar to Dan here, where we dropped off. I think we dropped off about a thousand cals from off-season calories. So I'm about four and a half kilos down now from my heaviest in the off-season. So tracking quite smoothly, I'm guessing we're probably going to be about five kilos down over that six weeks by the time we finish up. But um, yeah, pretty much a very smooth mini cut. Nothing really drastic. I did have a little bit of a niggle in the glute area, which I saw, uh, funny enough, Lawrence here, he was my physio, consulted him on the... uh, on the Monday, cleared a couple of things up going into this next uh, off-season because I definitely wanted to get that fixed up because last thing I want to do is to go in my next off-season, like a very productive off-season. Like I think it'll be around about 25 to 30 weeks before I even think about dieting again. And last thing I wanted to do is have a niggle carrying over. Yeah, I told him to stop training all completely. I think we're going to just <laughs> call it there. It's yeah, been a good so, run though, DY. So we, so we discussed maybe skipping all leg days, which ugh, worked fine with me, yeah. <laughs> Just, just arms and shoulders for the rest of your bodybuilding career. Yeah, so it's four upper body days from now on. No, we just had to clear up. I had to just pull back on a couple of movements, just make sure they're feeling a little bit smooth, and then I'll uh, slightly creep them up again. During the last off-season coming out of my show, lifts were moving very smoothly, probably a little bit too smoothly, and I think I just probably overdid a little bit. So getting the word from the big man just to pull it back a touch, uh, and then, yeah, hopefully to a very productive uh, next 25 to 30 weeks. And then after that 25 to 30 weeks, will that be having you around the point where you think you'll start a prep for next year if all heads in that direction? So I've done out the planning. I think it's about 80 weeks till Worlds. So I pretty much got about 50 weeks before I would even start prep. So my guess would be about 25 to 30 weeks, maybe do another mini cut there, tighten it up a bit, maybe six to eight weeks. And then that would give me about 10 to 15 weeks of like maintaining maybe like a slight little bit of a surplus to get me in a really good position to then go into that season B prep. Like I said, I'm not a hundred percent on it, but I just wanted to lay out a plan to, you know, have something on paper and that's how I'd probably go about it. Yeah. Um, Jack, from your perspective with regard to mini cuts, how frequent do you think someone should be looking to have those? Because I know there's like a camp, for example, like Alberto Nunes, who is sort of, I guess the joke he had a few years ago was the war on mini cuts, you know, people pulling the trigger too often and not having enough time to surplus. But then if you hear someone like Dr. Mike Isratel speak, it seems like he has quite rapid shifts between the time that he's massing and the time that he's mini cutting. So if anyone's wondering how they need to balance it, if they're coaching themselves, what would you recommend? Yeah, so I definitely think there is that fine balance because you don't want to wait too long because then you'll probably need more than a mini cut to pull off the amount of weight warranted to get you into a position to continue gaining. But at the same time, if you do it too frequently, you're just restricting your, your progress. And typically the range we give or the ratio is around one to four. So like that would equal four months of gaining equals one month of mini cut. And usually a mini cut would be anywhere from two to six weeks for me. So I think a really good period of gaining that I try and hold myself to and clients as well is six months or at least six months in a surplus if there's nothing pressing or there's nothing that we immediately need to work towards. I think uh, at least six months provides a lot of good value for growing muscle. But what, what do you guys think? I would agree with that one, yeah. I think doing a mini cut or any more than let's say t- twice a year, like, I mean, it obviously depends on how aggressively you, you want to gain. Um, which is going to determine when you should therefore run your next mini cut, but also, you know, how far away you're getting away from that kind of striking distance of jumping on stage again. Um, so it's, it's always that argument of if we're mini cutting too often, you know, we're, we're spending less time sacrificing within a gaining phase. So yeah, I think the, the mindset should always be, Hey, let's try and mini cut as least as less often as we can. Uh, and, and only like, go down that route when it's when it's kind of needed. That's my my thought process there. If we monitor our rate of gain, let's say one, 1% of, of rate, weight gain per, per month, uh, then it's always assessing how far away we're getting from, you know, striking distance and kind of at that point determining whether it's, it's viable to mini cut or not. Um, yeah, that's my, my kind of thoughts there. 
I think Jack really nailed it on the head with that, like four to one. I delayed mine a little bit, but that was pretty much because I was coming out of prep. Like I, I reversed out of it, not so much recovery dieted. So I was able to get probably another extra, I think I did about five to one or six to one odds. I think before I even started uh, thinking about a mini cut, it was already about 30 weeks post-show. So, but like, you know, if you're in the midst of your off season, I think that four to one is probably like a really good spot. Do you find that you don't do them as much with females, uh, DY? I just think about like, maybe it's a reflection of my bias in the majority of people that I probably follow on social media, but I just seem to think that it's maybe not as common with some of the smaller females, which probably just means that, you know, they're not having to push the body weight as high and maybe there's just no need for it. What's your experience with that? So I think the girls actually want to mini cut the most, but probably don't need to like, like every time, like a girl starts gaining weight, they like, you know, obviously like a little bit of body conscious, like, you know, like, Oh, like I'm gaining weight here. Where it's like, you know, you probably don't need to cut just yet. Just because you put on four kilos from like your lightest doesn't warrant a mini cut where like, you know, us guys might be able to go 12 to 15 kilos. And then we like, all right, now let's mini cut where they want to mini cut more frequently. Um, and sometimes you're just going to be like, listen, like, you know, we're only about 10 weeks reversing out. Like, you know, we're talking four kilos here. There's no need to mini cut. Like let's actually make some serious progress this off season. But like, you know, a lot of them do like to mini cut more often. That's just something that I've noticed. A lot of, a lot of girls are afraid of uh, like putting on larger amounts of weight. I'd also say that maybe men are more aggressive in their gaining phase as well. So it's like, you know, I've got to gain weight. And, uh, and then it's a little bit less conscious in around how much you're actually eating and, and therefore gaining so I think perhaps women might be more reserved with respect to how much, you know, they would like to gain um, in that, in that case. So it just seems as though men, many mini cut more often because, you know, it's perhaps we're just pushing our weight up more than what, what women are willing to, but like you said, you know, they, they, uh, they want to essentially do it, do it sooner than what they should, should be essentially. Do you have many female clients DC? Yes, I do. Yes. Yep. Um, I think what I found anecdotally is, is, is that's, that's pretty much the case. I find that it's more of a struggle in, in some cases to discuss the benefit around, you know, gaining, for, particularly for, for some women, uh, whereas a lot of my male clients, they'll be more uh, motivated and driven towards a, a gaining phase as opposed to um, some, some resistance in around women wanting to, to spend, you know, a period of time watching their body fat increase. So, yeah, I can, I can vouch for that one for sure. And Jack, you have, is it just the one female client that you have at the moment? No, I have a few female clients, not, I have a good mix of clients who are competitors and non-competitors. So I do have uh, Ali who is going to be competing season A next year and a couple of others in the works, but also like, for example, I signed up with someone on Sunday who's in the US. So I do get a lot of traction, fortunately in the US, mainly from the podcast, which, and Google funnily enough. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do. Yeah, I do find it very interesting that I guess naturally, if you look across at the landscape of contest prep coaches, for the most part, you tend to see female coaches having a much heavier female client base. And then some males will exclusively deal with males. And then there's a lot of mixture in between. Interestingly, though, I don't see as often a female coach having a lot of male clients which I find interesting, but yeah, I suppose, I don't know why that would be, but. Yeah. I think it often depends on the client. Some, some females like having male coaches and, and vice versa, but probably depends on both the client and the coach and the dynamic as well. And what the client wants from a coach as well. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose for some people that may not be, or they may be a little bit new to the whole idea of having to then you know send check-in photos wearing very little i think it's very reasonable for you know female competitors to probably feel a bit more comfortable sending them to a lady which i completely would understand and respect so maybe there's a small bit of that but i just think you know that cross divide is probably just going to get less and less noticeable as the sport keeps growing which it does seem to be every single year um, which I guess is exciting. What did you guys think about the announcement this week that the Tropics is coming to an end? Yeah, it is quite bittersweet. Well, never having competed at the Tropics myself, I'm feeling very fortunate that I'll be able to be one of the last or the last season competing there in 2023 season B. 
Yeah, well, that was my first ever show done at the Tropics. So, like, my first show and pretty much one of my last seasons was done there as well. Like, uh, that was the last show that I won the overall there. So, it was, uh, it's, it's kind of weird that it's going to be gone. But, you know, I guess sometimes some shows don't make as much money as, like, what the Sunshine Coast show would. Like, you know, they get far more competitors at a Sunshine Coast show now than what they do at the Tropics just because pretty much anyone that does Brisbane is going to do Sunshine Coast. It's just a one-and-a-half-hour drive. So why wouldn't you? Where if you want to do the Townsville now, it's like you got to fly up there and it's a lot more expensive. But it was actually a really good show. The way they ran it at that Audi Centre, it was, it, was, it was really good. It's just a shame that, you know, it might not be making as much money uh, as what the Sunshine Coast does. I'm with you um, in terms of that as well, Dan, because like that was my that was my first show last season, uh, having competed across the two, and having had such a positive experience there on stage. Like the, the promoters were were amazing. Um, the event was just just phenomenal. Um, even backstage, it was really comfortable. The vibe was great. I thought it was a, just a fantastic show. So, like you said, Jack, it is bittersweet in that regard. Um, and if you happen to be a competitor, you know, over the next sort of year that can do that show, I would absolutely recommend that you do so because it's, it's just a fantastic, fantastic time. Yeah. From what I saw from the announcement, it sounds like season B will still take part this year at the Audi center. And then season B 2023 will be the last one. So Jackie boy, we have to make sure that one way or another, the Tropic sword comes home with the bodybuilding down under podcast. Yeah, hopefully they put on a, a good show for that final season. Looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. So what about the rest of the week, guys? Anything interesting, anything unique in any of your training or nutrition that's been of note for the last week or so? Well, I wanted to quickly ask you how your past week's been as well, because I noticed that you've just started a mini cut. Is that right? Yeah, so we've just kicked one off. So me and Joey had a bit of a chat over the last few weeks that now would probably be a pretty good time you know the calories are very high body fat is just kind of still reasonable in my opinion i don't think i look like a complete mess at this weight which is good and we ended up pushing up to like the highest body weight i've been which was around you know 96 and a half to 97 most mornings which is quite heavy for me and the plan will to be to do a six to eight week mini cut um we can see if we'll get it done in six but i think it will probably end up being eight weeks all up but we won't go too much further than that and I think if we could get down to 91, 90, maybe just touch into the 89s, anywhere between there, I think will be pretty good. And yeah, I'm looking forward to having the last 90 kilo picture up against this current one to see if we've, you know, grabbed a little bit more tissue along the way, which is always the goal. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it because as DC alluded to, there gets to that point where you're looking at the cereal and the whey in the bowl and you just don't really want to throw it down the gullet. But yeah, I'm actually have really enjoyed the last few days of being able to eat a little bit more reasonable quantities and not feel so full towards the end of the day. I think that's one of the benefits of, of mini cutting as well is, is actually seeing the progress that you've made, you know, within the last gaining phase, because as we know, when we hold a little bit more body fat, it's a little bit more challenging to assess, you know, progress. Um, so it's a bit more clear cut, obviously, when you're a little bit leaner and you can definitely see that you have been hitting the nail on the head with respect to your, your training and um, training intensity and obviously programming as well as, as the time in which you've been spent, spent in, a, in a calorie surplus as well. So definitely from a motivational and sort of drive standpoint, I think it can be very advantageous. Yeah, for sure. That's actually... Related to the mini cut, that's one question I wanted to ask you guys is often when we talk about nutrition and dieting, we, we ask, okay, what's like the most diet food related meal that you've had, but what about in a gaining phase? Like what's the most desperate you've become with food to consume calories? So yeah, D, DC, I'll let you kick that off. Yeah. So probably, probably cereal is my go-to for sure. So always ensuring that I've got some sort of cereal in the cupboard. Uh, also, you know, honey, like I mentioned, and, um, yeah, I, have definitely been in situations where I've had to have a good 80, 80 to hundred grams of whey, whey powder to, to try and tick off that, that, uh, that protein target, definitely not the most optimal way to approach things, but you, you could argue, you know, not get that in versus getting it in irrespective of getting in a very large chunk of it. Uh, at one time, you know, that's, that's kind of the ridiculousness of in of some cases where you, where you need to go in the off season to try and, you know, tick, tick these boxes. What, what's the highest your calories have been in a gaining phase? 
probably not as high as some of you you guys actually. Uh, just over the four k is probably probably where I'm at. Mm. Um, my appetite has just never been like it used to when I was younger. Obviously, when I was swimming and all that sort of stuff. Uh, four thousand for me is is a lot nowadays. I, I find it quite challenging to get in that much. Yeah, I think it, it might even be related to a lot of us working behind a desk a lot of the day, being a little bit more sedentary than we might have been in in uh, ten years ago or something, which is an interesting point to consider. But DY, what about you? Have have you noticed your appetite like losing that towards the end of a gaining phase? Not to be honest, but that being said, my cows are probably like nowhere near as high as like some of yours. Like I think my highest cows in the gaining phase were, gaining phase were only 3.6 this this off season, which was quite good. It's probably going to get a lot higher, unfortunately for me uh, coming into this next gaining phase. But to be honest, like I don't really see an issue until I have to pass uh, go past that 4,000 mark, which which was pretty much last off season, right at the back end of it. We were getting to about that 4,000 plus each day. And uh, yeah, it gets quite challenging, especially when like, you know, you don't do that much activity during the day and your step count probably isn't as high as uh, let's say like Lawrence or someone like here. That's where he's on, on his feet all the time. Now in terms of my meal, <laughs> I haven't been that desperate, but probably like Nutrigrain with some low fat milk and some honey on top with like a, a cup of V8 uh, vegetable juice or something like that. So that way I can get my micros in there a little bit as well. And just very large amount of carbs while keeping the fats semi-decent. But to be honest, like I said, hasn't been the biggest challenge. Mm, yeah, well, cereal seems to be a favorite so far. What about you, Lawrence? Yeah, well, on the cereal... I don't know if like Nutrigrain, that's quite like big chunks or even if like Milo cereal is so filling. I think the key is to get something like Cocoa Pops, Rice Bubbles, because then if you use the right amount of whey, it coats it in such a fashion that it just becomes like a, a clump of food that you can just like throw in your dumb face, which is optimal for the gaining phase because it's, it's all about time of eating, mate. You know that. But I think yeah. for me... Look, I definitely had a few uh, Easter eggs that ended up being tracked towards the daily totals for ease of calories uh, towards uh, Easter of this year. But the big one towards the end of my last massing phase was like the fats is not something that I incorporate frequently into most meals. So often I would have, you know, 50 grams of fat to get through in the final meal of the day. And I was just um, mixing pesto into whatever the final meal was. And it was actually awesome because it made it taste at least acceptable and it was an easy way to get the fats in whether or not it was the highest quality fat jack i'm not sure you're probably shaking your head at me but it was good yeah i've heard you're a big fan of of mixing hummus as well i don't see the problem with that it's delicious mate it's absolutely bang on see i was just picturing you with just this giant spoon of um heaped peanut butter yeah i find the peanut butter though i don't know like i i don't want to overshoot my protein a lot of the time so like i'll go for like a lower like a lower protein fat option if you know what i mean because yeah. i'm trying to get in like 35 grams of hbv protein per meal so the peanut butter tends to just tick me a little bit over and i'm a bit pedantic i like to try and hit my numbers as close as i can sure yeah yeah what about you radford smith are you still doing the uh olive oil shots <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'm a little bit shameful i seem to have gone a lot further in this than than you guys in terms of being a bit dramatic but i this was back in my first off season where i my food was a lot higher i think purely because i was more active and it was getting closer to like the 5k or above and i don't know what it was but i would get to this point in the evening where i would i would finish my macros and uh this is an example of uh do what i say and not what i do but I would get to that point in the evening where I would feel ravenous uh, despite hitting all my food. So I would literally just go to the kitchen cupboard and 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 drink some olive oil, <laughs> which obviously I wouldn't do now because uh, my macros are um, in the right spot now. But yeah, that was an interesting time as Tierra frequently reminds me of. But if you were hungry, why would you drink olive oil? Like if you were ravenous, wouldn't it be better just to eat something? You make an interesting point. Like, I was just so done with eating, but I could tell that my body, I would wake up lighter. I'm not sure if you guys have experienced that where you've done, you're eating your food, but you know that you haven't eaten quite enough. I can't say I have. Okay. Well, no, I can't at that point. Been there either, to be, to be honest. Jack is just so in tune yeah. with his body. He just knows. <laughs> yeah. I'm just How like the, the old school pro bodybuilders, you know, they just rely on instinct. 
how high were the calories and uh, macros at that point? Like, was it like deep in the off season or? Yeah, it was, it was very deep. And it was also when I was, I think, gaining quite a lot of muscle, like very early on in my, in my first ever proper off season. And maybe potentially like I was more metabolically active to use that term. But I think I would have been, I can't remember on the, on the exact macros, but it was, it was getting close to that 5k mark, which is even higher than what it is now. Like I'm closer to 41, 4,200 at the moment. Yeah. Isn't it interesting though? Cause like I look back on when you come out of a contest prep and it's all about oh, my carbs are going to go up again this week. My carbs are going to, and it almost becomes this like pissing contest of, Oh, who's got the highest carbs? Like, Oh, have you heard about how much he eats? And then I think when you reevaluate, you're like, oh, do I really need to push the food up that high? to make progress like even sometimes i question that i'm like did i really need to push the body weight this high to make the same progress like could we have saved another like two or three kilos of fat gain and obviously that's not really my call to make because joey's the expert but it does make you wonder like what the results would be like if we did stay a little bit leaner through the year it's always funny because you always compare with someone else. You'd be like, well, this guy's in my same division or like he's a bodybuilder and then he's, he's eating another 1,500 calories than me. But then realistically, you could be gaining the same amount of weight each week. Like you might be on that 1% per month, like DC said. And, you know, there is no real need to bump up the calories because then you're just going to be putting on excess fat. Like your performance is going up, your body weight's going up. Like why would you need to increase calories so much more? It would just cause unwanted weight gain, I guess. <laughs> find it really interesting when people tend to use your your calorie intake as like a proxy as to whether you've made you know improvements or, or not for example so like if I look at myself back when I was a full-time personal trainer in Sydney my calorie needs at, at that point because I was just so physically active were much much higher than what they are now whereas you know the comparison between myself in terms of muscularity now versus then is is greater so you know, you can't just use a proxy of, of, of what calories you're on based on, you know, whether you've made improvements, improvements or not, because obviously your NEAT, your activity levels plays such a large uh, influencing factor in your overall caloric needs. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And the same can be said in prep, like especially comparing between different competitors, like someone might be doing an hour on the Stairmaster a day and 20,000 steps on top of that, they get 400 carb, but then you're a sedentary individual and you're on 200 carb, but realistically that, that comparison isn't, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Final question on mini cuts boys, before we move on as the three of you are all coaches esteemed, I might add in our industry, are you one to set a increase in daily steps in the mini cut? Or if you do have an off season, off season step count, will you generally just leave it where it is and and just try and use the caloric deficit to get the weight loss off. Yeah, yeah. well, I personally will increase it slightly just to offset metabolic adaptation because there's definitely a few stances on steps. I think steps ultimately aren't a particularly efficient means of increasing energy expenditure, but we do know that when someone undertakes a dieting phase, they will metabolically adapt and certain aspects of their activity will adapt as well. So their gait will change. They'll naturally do less steps. So I tend to increase it slightly uh, to help offset that. I think also, yeah, just like you said, setting in stone a step target during a mini cut phase, I think just helps to kind of standardize the amount of physical activity that you want this person to participate in almost as like a, as a constant, which in, in which case you can then manipulate nutrition to create your desired, you know, calorie, calorie deficit from there, because as you mentioned, let's say you make an adjustment to your caloric intake and the person down-regulates how much steps they do each and every day uh, because they're a little bit more tired, perhaps from the, the calorie deficit and all of a sudden the relative deficit they're in is just that little bit less. So I think that's another importance of, of setting a step target. But that being said, you know, not making it unrealistic to be able to achieve, I think is really important as well because you're not trying to give people the trauma of prep again. <laughs> so for example, like myself, my steps increased by, I believe it was a, a thousand or 2000. So what kind of went from around, I average on, on 6,000, I try and get every day. I believe the highest it went during my last mini cut was about sort of eight, 8,000. So that's realistic for me to achieve. I think if I started pushing upwards of, of 10 above, 
um, I would just be spending an unnecessarily amount of time, you know, on the treadmill trying to get those in considering that I'm quite sedentary throughout the day. And I have a personal preference towards just decreasing those calories from my food, as opposed to spending more time trying to burn that through my, my movement, which I think is a really inefficient way of doing things. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but pretty much the exact same as both these boys. First thing is like the nutrition, like, you know, you got to make sure you're in that calorie deficit first. And then I normally ask the client um, and see where their steps are roughly at and see what's a to tolerable amount. Like, I don't want to be like, oh, I want you to hit 10K and they got a desk job. Like, they don't want to be walking for two hours every night. So see where they're at and I might bump it up a touch if they're able to do it. If not, I might have to make that further in the deficit in terms of the food. Yeah, beautiful. Very wise from the uh, the brains trust of the bodybuilding down under podcast. So, Jack, you uh, brought an interesting question to the conversation, and I'd like you to pose it to the audience and to us because it's something you want to discuss on the podcast. So, please, you have the floor. Yeah. So, I was just brainstorming some topics for this episode. I'm I'm hoping that in future episodes we can start to get some of the listener questions. But yeah, it's the notion around making bodybuilding a bit more objective. We know that bodybuilding is very subjective in that it's your placing is decided by a judging panel and some judging panels don't even use scoring. They just choose their, their first, second, third, etc. So I was thinking, what if bodybuilding was a purely objective sport or as objective as possible in the sense that your pro status was decided by a certain number of points. So even if you win an overall show, you can't get you might not get pro if you don't reach the allocated points or scoring and that means you could also turn pro at a local show if you're deemed good enough and i think this appeals to me slightly because someone could be pro worthy nowadays and not really get that pro status for many years if they're just beaten time and time again by someone better but with this method uh, they could turn pro purely by reaching that designated score so i thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss with you guys. So my first question would be like, when you say there's a score, because obviously in bodybuilding shows, it's scored on like who wins the shot. And then the person with the lowest total is the winner. But that in itself is like subjective, even though it's a numbers based score, it's still subjective. So would you be scoring people based on, like their DEXA scan body fat percentages? Would you be taking girth measurements of their muscles? Like how do you propose you get that objective score so that there is some sort of baseline across all these different shows? Yeah, well, I haven't exactly written a guidebook on this yet. Uh, give me a couple more weeks, but I think the way I'm picturing it is, I guess, got judges for that particular federation. Let's just call it like the bodybuilding down under federation. And they would get taught a particular style of judging and then each shot might get a particular score out of 10 based on size, symmetry, conditioning as well. And then all the total shots would be compiled to reach a total score and out of let's say a hundred potentially. Yeah, yeah, I like that idea. <laughs> I just don't think it works though because I think that like you're only getting compared to the people that you're against so let's say that the maximum score for any given bodybuilder at any given show is 100. Like if you are to go against those other people, like the winner would still be 100 and there'd be no way to grade them against like a quote unquote control neutral bodybuilder because it's always about who you're standing up against. I think like mm. a more interesting... Yeah, you go. Yeah, well, I'll just cut in. Like the whole point of this method is that you're not comparing people to one another in that you're objectively comparing each individual person. And I'm not here to say that it's a good method. I think I agree that like the whole kind of passion behind bodybuilding is versing other competitors and trying to beat them. So that's definitely where this falls short. Yeah, but I would still say like you have to compare it to something. So what would you compare it to? That's a good question. That's where I need to go home and do some more research. Well, I feel well, I like the comparisons. Oh, you can go. I know for the IFBB, like to qualify for the Olympia, if you're not within a certain placing, you know, one second, um, first or second, I believe it might be first only, I can't, I can't quite remember, but um, it, it becomes down to a scoring system as well. So for you to qualify for the Olympia, you need to have, you know, the, the most or the least score, depending on how the score kind of works. I'm not entirely sure, but that's kind of like the most similar type of, system i believe that that's implemented based on that that i mean it's it's always going to be subjective based on how bodybuilding is assessed 
but your scorecard and how many points you accrue towards getting to the Olympia is the objective component. So yes, I think you, but I can't, I don't think you can have one without the other. I think it's, I find it hard to, to wrap my head around that, to be honest. Yeah. So I think the scoring, like it could be like out of a hundred, let's say if you got the hundred points, the hundreds, like a world champion bodybuilder naturally. So that's what you'd be comparing it to. But then let's say you need at least 80 points to turn pro, which would put you at a pro rank. Like you might, like if you get a hundred out of a hundred in an amateur level, well, technically they're like a pro level competitor and they would have won a pro show. And that's what you'd probably compare it to because the hundred would be perfect. Like you wouldn't be able to touch it. And then maybe in terms of the actual scoring, maybe it's 10 points for every body part, then maybe 20 points for conditioning, and then maybe like 10 points for like presentation and posing. So then that would make up the total of the hundred. So like, you know, let's say they might have some poor genetics on a certain muscle group, but it's really complete. So then they might get like a score out of six or seven, uh, six or seven out of that 10. But then once you add it all up, then you get their grand score. So like, you know, like I said, the hundred would be perfect. They would pretty much have perfect genetics, um, and then they would have it fully, a fully complete physique alongside good conditioning and good posing, which would net them a hundred. Now, if they're missing certain parts, like let's say they might have average posing, like you might only get five out of the 10 points. And then, you know, maybe if they have really weak hamstrings, they might get two out of the 10 and then it adds up to their total score. I think I've solved it boys. So I think what we need <laughs> is like a standardized cartoon version for each shot for each division. And it's like drawn with a cartoon and every single show gets this standardized picture. And then in each shot, you need to compare what that person is with the picture being a 100 point scale. And obviously we know that no one's going to rock up with the exact perfect symmetries and stuff. So, you know, Ronnie Coleman with his proportions and his physique may be like a 95 compared to the 100 percent artificial drawing that we've got but then you could compare all those things and you could still rate everyone on a scale but then you still get back to like these intangible things about bodybuilding for example like chris bumstead if we followed that approach there may be another guy in classic that beats bumstead on those metrics but when you see him on stage and i know this is not exactly what you were saying jack i know i'm diverting a bit here but when you see bumstead on stage it's also this intangible like mystique and aura about him that just makes him the perfect classic competitor is it the mustache perhaps you know me and dc know this very well but it's like this thing that you can't quite put your finger on but it just makes chris bumstead chris bumstead and i think that's where the numbers wouldn't be able to capture it and i think that's probably a big issue because that's so important in bodybuilding it's like when you see competitors walk out individually for their posing routine before their symmetry rounds and they're all compared amongst one another and you see each competitor come out and you're like, wow, this person looks incredible. Like, wow, you know, their size, their symmetry, X, Y, Z. And then it comes to the symmetry round and the mandatory, you know, poses, muscular poses. And, uh, and, and you see the separation between who's actually better and who's second and first and things like that. So yeah, that, I mean, somehow within this objectiveness, you would have to still allow for a comparison amongst competitors aside from, from one another. And then there would be that old that whole um, argument in and around what's what is the gold standard? You know, people will uh, have different opinions on what is that one hundred percent score. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some some might argue perfect symmetry, and some might argue slightly more biased towards the lower body, or you know what I mean. So everybody's going to have a little bit of a different opinion around what they think is that kind of golden ratio or, or golden score. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that's why like sometimes you might, the judges might need to change their mind slightly on what they're looking for on the day, depending on who shows up and what the consensus is for that category. So yeah, I think I've been, yeah, swiped aside here with my notion of objective bodybuilding. Yeah, what the oh, hell were you on, thinking mate. with that? You make it sound <laughs> like we Don't were- bring that crap in here. <laughs> Actually on the, uh, on the topic of, I guess, pro card worthiness. And I don't mean to bring the episode. I don't want to make it sound like I'm, you know, on my own pepper grinder here, but I actually got a very interesting message today from uh, Stuart O'Brien, who's the president of NBA Australia. And it was basically messaging saying that, you know, they've decided to retrospectively 
offer some pro cards to the overall winners from 2020. And yeah, he, he offered me my NBA pro card because he, he said that I, I deserved one, but he also said that he's, you know, understanding if I don't want to accept it for any reason. So I, that was very interesting. And I guess it comes back to that whole thing of like, you know, is that only because you then see maybe competitors afterwards that were awarded pro cards? Um, it all comes back to, I think, what you see on the day which um, I think that's all, that's all we can go with bodybuilding. You know, there's always these shows where people say, oh, how did that guy win a show? But it's like, well, he must've just been the best person there on the day. Yeah, for sure. That's that whole thing with any, with any competition, right? It'd be like something which is objective, such as, you know, how many balls you, you hit through the, through the goalpost for soccer and things like that. But imagine if like the winning team wasn't awarded the win on that day because it comes down to how many, you know, uh, how many goals you score over the entire year. It didn't have enough stage presence. Yeah, it didn't have enough stage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. So it's, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really difficult one for sure. Well, talk us through your decision, Lawrence. Like, have you come to a decision? Yes, no, maybe? Yeah, so I politely declined. And the reason for that was I was very appreciative and I, I thanked Stu, like, profusely for even taking the time to reach out and send the message but I guess in my head the way that I thought about it was like well if I wasn't of pro caliber on the day and if it didn't you know strike the judges at that point to think hey we need to give this guy a pro card my physique has not been proven to be any better than that between that time so I almost and I have to think about it in the sense of, okay, when I write my goals up for what I want to achieve in bodybuilding, when I look at my board of what I want, do I want to win a pro card or do I want to be retrospectively offered a pro card? And I guess it's not about having the card. It's not about being able to put pro bodybuilder Instagram bio. It's about, you know, being able to have that moment where you're standing on stage and you get to think, you know, it's here. And I just think that gets taken away a little bit if it is in a retrospective manner. And obviously that's nothing against NBA or Stuart. Like I'm super grateful that they even offered me, but I guess I just see it happening a different way. And I know I'll get more opportunities to do it in the way that I want to. And probably the sub reason as well is that at this stage, it's not really going to change anything. And I would rather be able to go after the pro card next season or the season after or whenever it decides to make its way to me and and win it in a way that I'll be able to truly appreciate the win and appreciate the way that I did it yeah I for what it's worth I think you made a good decision and I like your confidence as well saying when not if the next one's coming around I do have a, a question for the two Dans and like it's around that topic of like getting your pro status eventually and often as amateurs especially amateurs who actually want to turn pro they they spend years fighting towards that pro status and then you've heard stories about amateurs who get that pro status and then suddenly they fall off the map or they're they're like okay what's next because in natural bodybuilding there you don't have the luxury of doing a lot of pro pro level shows as dan uh, dy kind of touched on last episode but yeah dy like has anything changed like post pro win Nothing really changes, but you just got to remember now, now that you're going from an amateur level to a pro level, you do need to up the standard. Like you just can't be like, you know, as before where maybe you like nilly willy in the off season, like, you know, maybe not tracking stuff like on a pro stage, everyone's good. And that's the thing is like, you have to earn like, unless they give it to you, I guess, but like, you know, they have to, you have to earn your way to a pro stage and the quality of athletes there is just increased so much more like you they just get better and better every year and to be competitive you do need to up your training your nutrition and so on like that it's not the amateur shows like you know you get to display your physique and then if you're rewarded then you know when once you step on the stage it's like everyone's up there to to dance you know there ain't no mucking around can i uh just play devil's advocate for a moment dy like mm-hmm. obviously i don't personally think that for you you know a pro set, a pro card mindset is what got you to that position in the first place. Like, would you say that your training and nutrition has really leveled up that much? Because I would almost argue that the people who eventually then get their pro status were doing that stuff anyway. That's why they're a pro. 
I don't think I can recall too many instances where I've gone, oh yeah, so-and-so won their pro card and they've really like taken it up a notch. I almost think one, the end goal doesn't come without already those things being at a pro level. Yeah, that, that's true. But now when I like think about it, it's like, you know, if I might do something, oh, I was like, I've got to like, I'm, I think now I'm like, I've got to conduct myself as a professional. Like, you know, oh, I might've done something in the past, like maybe in the off season, you know, maybe not have tracked my lifts for a large amount of times. So but now it's like, well, everything's tracked. I want to make sure that everything's done correctly. So then that way, when I do stand up on stage, you know, it's like recognition for like everything that you've done. It's like, well, now all that stuff has gotten me here. So, you know, why would I like stop it and like muck around anymore? Yeah, I think that I don't think a whole lot changes really. Perhaps, you know, a little bit more motivated for the interim, but really like what, what you touched upon, Lawrence, was like the discipline to get there remains the same. And all the behaviors and the habits that you've adopted to reach that goal remain remain the same as well. So not a whole lot has, has, has changed in, in my case, really. Um, but I think it's also incredibly important to remain humble in the sense that just winning uh, a pro status is not like the, the be all end all. Um, obviously, there's, there's competition above and beyond that in which you still have a motivation and a driver to, to, to actualize, such as winning a world title or competing internationally, it might be. Um, competing across federations for example um and just bringing your best to the stage the next time around so yeah it's like you you, you reach that milestone but then once that milestone is reached it's immediately setting setting the next goal and the recognition that yeah perhaps what what you said dy is that the the caliber in which you need to bring to the next the next stage showing needs to be above and beyond so if anything it's perhaps not improving anything per se but it's just like i have to remain diligent in what in what habits and disciplines i've already established to get here these need to stay in place i can't take my foot off the pedal and just become content with my achievement there's there's more to basically achieve from here on i what do you think about you know different pro cards and different federations because i almost think that in australia at least the pro shows are limited by the fact that one pro card kind of always take you interchangeably into the other federations and we would probably have deeper and bigger lineups in pro shows if the pros were able to just go as they please so do you think that's something that would benefit the sport jack yeah well i might be incorrect in saying this but i thought that nba did allow icn pros to compete in their pro show i think that was the recent one but is that a rule for like nba inba you know, no, not not across all federations, but yeah, it I definitely is mm, one of the yeah. downsides of Australia being such a small population compared to the US is, yeah, you can't guarantee those numbers at the shows at the pro level, but it certainly is an interesting concept to allow all pros to compete across all federations. It would definitely require a lot of collaboration for that to occur. That being said, though, some federations might not accept other people's pro cards. Like, you know, maybe if nba was to give out their pro card to you lawrence but then icm was like well technically he didn't earn it on stage like on that day and he wasn't rewarded accordingly so then why would we let him on our pro stage and then you know it could be like let's say embarrassing like maybe lawrence might go over to america to represent australia even though he's an nba competitor for icn and like maybe he might drop the ball and look crap it won't happen lawrence but you know you know what i'm saying and then it makes australia really look bad as like in the icn like sane all i heard was that i'm an embarrassment <laughs> <laughs> definitely not the case uh, but i was using you as, as an example since you got uh, offered the pro card no no i definitely i get you that. and you're completely right because yeah every federation has their own ob quote-unquote objective understanding of what a pro physique looks like and if that's not standardized despite our best efforts on this podcast then uh they can't be sure that everyone's going to be able to stand on that pro stage looking in the way that they want. So it completely makes sense. Did anyone see photos of the recent pro show? I didn't see too much. Uh, I don't follow a lot of the guys that seem to compete, but no, not, I haven't seen any of it. I'm just looking Whoa. forward to the, the pro ICN pro show this weekend. DY yeah. you're, you're going this weekend, right? Where's it? Where's the show? In Sydney. Oh. Oh, nationals. no, 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 I'm not going at all. Okay. I don't have any competitors doing the nationals, so okay. I'm not going to go, but I will watch. Isn't cool. Kate going for a pro card? 
yeah, Kate will be going for a pro card. So yeah. that's good for Tierra, Team TBD. So yeah, Dude, if Kate doesn't get that card, like it's going to take an absolute freak to beat her. Yeah. I think I think my money's definitely with Kate at this point in time. I remember seeing her at one of the posing classes about probably half a year ago and she looked insane there. And then she just got better, bigger and leaner over that entire six months. I was just like, my jaw hit the ground. Like her physique is insane. And to be able to stand on like an IFBB stage and win like open divisions and so on like that is just incredible as a natural athlete. Yeah, well, full credit to Tierra and Kate because yeah, Tierra has been working with her for I think a year and a half now and they collaborated superbly over this entire period and I think Kate might have goals to compete in 2024 so uh, between now and then full-on off-season it's going to be very cool to see what happens next. I think there's a golden nugget within what you just said and that's basically like having worked for you know let's say a year and a half you know time frame rather than for example Kate just coming to Tierra for simply that contest prep spending some time actually in a building phase, you know, prior to, I think is so integral and important to someone's success, you know, on stage and setting up uh, basically a, a successful prep as well. So yeah, good on, good on them both. That's awesome. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Jack, are you heading down to Sydney, mate? Yes, I will be. Yep. Beautiful. You're going to scope out any uh, Sydney gyms while you're down there. What have you got your eye on? Uh, I think we're going to keep it simple. And we went to world gym. I think it's Penrith last time where they had a nice Arnold mural and we'll probably just head there again and train on Saturday and rest day on Sunday for the for the show itself. Uh, but I think it's actually a two-day show this weekend for the Nationals, which I think is good because like, you don't have to cram the full thing in one day. And yeah, we'll just be heading there on Sunday for figure. Yeah, when perfect. You, um, I'm, when are you flying down? Uh, on the Friday, yeah, Friday afternoon. Okay, cool. Because I'm flying down on the Friday morning. I think our flight's pretty damn early. Cool. Um, yeah, I've got Michael competing in men's physique. Uh, so, and I think he's on it first first up on, on Saturday. Not first up, but like around sort of 12. Uh, so that'll be exciting. He took out the overalls at the, the Queensland Frizzy show. Um, and he's come in a, a, a tad leaner, gotten in a little bit leaner leading into this show. So um, yeah, should be, should be a good time. DY, do you have any people at the Nationals? No, no, no nationals this uh, this season. So he's real lucky. Nah, mess with you. Nah, I, we wrapped it up after the Brisbane. So all my clients are now uh, in the reverse process and uh, we'll be going into the off season. Yeah, cool. And Jack, I mean, obviously I don't want to miss, I don't want to mess up your plans or anything, but I'm not sure where in Sydney it is, but there's a, a, a gym called Kingdom Gym. I used to see it on the Instagram story of a uh, WMBF pro called Evan Godby. I don't know who, I don't yes, know, I know who he him, is. Yeah. And that gym always looked awesome, man. So if you want to shake it up, head there for me because I want to live vicariously through you. Yeah, well, if we head there, you'll be the first to know and I can, I can give it a review next week on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. He has an awesome physique. I remember seeing pictures from him back in the day. He's just like massive, like huge arms, huge chest. I haven't seen any photos of him where he's like, you know, inside out peeled you know like bk level or anything like that but yeah very very good bodybuilder and obviously wmbf pro so that sort of credential speaks for itself yeah certainly i've he kind of has that sort of primal sort of look to him where he looks at a weight and grows he you can tell he has those genetics about him yeah liver king <laughs> that's right how did you catch the w how did he catch the WNBF pro card in Australia? Did he do the American show or did he do the New Zealand show? I'm not actually too sure. I know he's competed over in the States before because I remember, I think the last time Alberto Nunez competed, Evan competed as well because Berto coached Evan, I believe. Uh, yeah. So I know that he did a show over there. I'm not sure if that's where he got his card, but there's a chance, you know, there's not really any opportunities to get it here that i'm aware yeah. of so yeah. yeah i think he must have won it over there he did a he actually did an episode with revive stronger a few years ago now yeah that's right mm. yeah for all the viewers that don't know the wnbf pro card in australia as a bodybuilder is extremely hard to get we have not a single show so pretty much the only way you get a wnbf pro card as a open bodybuilder is winning the world show or going to like new zealand to win their show yeah i didn't even know they had wnbf in in uh, New Zealand. That's new to me. Yeah, I saw one of BK's boys, I think, do the WMBF over there. And I believe he won his pro card at season B last year. 
Yeah, there's some awesome uh, bodybuilders prepping this year. Like even some of the updates. I don't know if you guys saw Keefe's update the mm. other day. He looks absolutely ridiculous. Like that three-quarter back where he pops the hamstring, that shot. Oh, it's man. Filthy. He's unbelievable. Like if he doesn't, you know, win the WNBF Worlds this year or, or do very, very well, I'll be very surprised. He looks insane. And then Birdo's about to start as well. And he looks ridiculous. So it's I was a, actually a really gonna, good year for Natty Bodybuilding. I was going to bring Birdo up because he was posting some of his single leg curls with the on the seated hamstring machine. And it looked like he was curling the full stack with a, a single leg curl. I'm not sure. Lawrence, you're nodding your head there. Yeah, it was like the full stack with one leg. I was like, that's absolutely absurd. He also does them more similar to how you do them, Jack, where he sort of allows the trunk to flex forward a little bit. But Birdo is one of those guys who I think just he knows his body so well. He almost like knows how to move exactly how he needs to move in order to get the best stimulus. Like when you watch him lift, it almost looks quite uncomfortable and you wouldn't show a beginner, a video of, you know, Alberto Nunes and say, this is how you should execute that movement because he does it in a very unique way. Like you watch him do his laterals, his curls, his rows. It's all very, you know, a bit weird. But um, I think that's just a reflection of him being like literally on another level with how well he knows his body. Like that guy's a a gym shaman, if ever there was one. It's yeah, just many years of refining, refining your craft, you know, refining the way in which, which you lift, which from someone who is external looking inwards, they may seem like, oh, that's, that's a bit bizarre the way this person is moving. But internally, the person executing it is getting everything they need from that movement. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess it just reiterates, you know, there's never one size fits all. And I think it's good, like the fitness industry and even, you know, from my perspective, the rehab and injury management community seems to be moving away from this idea of moving in a quote unquote perfect way with a perfectly neutral spine and perfectly aligned knees because I think that just ends up creating a lot more barriers to exercise because people are scared to be a little bit out of quote unquote alignment because they think they're going to hurt themselves so it's actually good to see more variety in the way that people move I think I remember AJ posting something recently about his uh, he's a heavy bent over rows and people like giving scrutiny surrounding, you know, that's not how you row. You're not, you need to be more horizontal, your torso relative to the floor. You know, you're hinging, you're, you're extending from the hips as you're pulling up. So you're using momentum and, uh, and all those sort of form, form critics. And again, it's like, well, hey, I can feel the target tissue working. You know, I'm, I'm loading the, I'm providing mechanical tension to the areas, the tissue that needs to grow. Who are you to say that this is not optimal for me? You know, so yeah, yeah. Next thing yeah. you know, the Generation Iron uh, Smith Machine incident that that got him called out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, the jokes on them. He got a fair few followers from that. So at the end of the day, what's the old saying? There's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, anyway, boys, we're coming up on an hour there. And I want to be respectful of all your busy schedules. So we'll probably start to wrap up. Is there any closing, closing thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Not really on my end. I think as of yet, uh, we haven't really publicized the podcast and we're aiming to do that quite soon. So I think uh, keep your eye out listening, listeners or eyes out for question boxes posted by one of us. And it'll be great to have a range of questions for each episode. So not just like the in-depth training and nutrition stuff, but also pretty much throw anything at us where we're up for any sort of questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think having some, some podcasts, which is more sort of spitfire in regards to, to Q&As and things like that, I think will be really advantageous uh, for, the, for the listeners to get some of their questions answered and see the perspective of others that are you know, living the lifestyle as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we covered a good range of topics today. So hopefully the viewers can get uh, some nice little bit of entertainment out of that and uh, hopefully many more good episodes to come. Absolutely. I'm, uh, for one, very excited to see where this show goes. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for us, a lot of fun for the listeners. And I just hope we can, you know, add a little bit to the natty scene here in Australia, which I think could definitely become a little bit more closely knit. So if we can play a small role in doing that, I think that we've done our jobs well. So we're going to leave it there for today. That's another episode of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast wrapped up. Uh, you know what to do, listener. If you did enjoy the show, please take a screenshot and post this up to your IG story. You can tag DC at Daniel.Chappelle. You can tag Jack at Jack.RadfordSmith. 
and you can tag dy at dy.fit. And of course, while you're there, you can tag myself, which is general.muscle. Make sure that you do that. We'll reshare to our stories as well. And please do take the time to leave a five-star review on either Spotify or Apple, as that's the best way to help the show grow to get in as many sets of headphones and earphones as possible. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next week.